following podcast may contain spoilers. Imagine yourself at a wedding after party at an Art Deco dive bar listening to a DJ spin dashboard confessional. The place is empty, save an entire balcony full of the wedding guests. You are stone cold sober and wondering just what the weight capacity of a 75-year-old balcony is. You've seen matinee, so you know they made them cheap in Florida. You try to maintain your poise and rationality and hope you don't end up in the headlines. Would they write about your sin for attending a wedding in a pandemic or the tragedy of a collapsed balcony under the weight of 100 Midwesterners, otherwise known as a metric cheese curd ton? Somewhere between closing goddamn doors and screaming infidelities, you get to talking about dragonborn paladins and whether they're metallic or not. Just then, it occurs to you, right before an endless global pandemic, A former flame convinced you to spend $400 on Dungeons & Dragons shit. This is where I'm at. I've got satchels of dyes and bookshelves of quests. I've got a game mat you can draw on that has sat in the same corner unopened for two years. So here I am getting ready to ship this stuff across the world for pennies on the dollar like a college bookstore swindle a dork you when a binge lord sponsors a deep dive into a forgotten fantasy flick. Binge Lord Dan slips some money in my PayPal, and even though I hate dungeons, with or without their dragons, what's a beef boy to do? Pin me, pay me. While other UK and Canadian binge lords may know the name, here in bumfuck where I come from, we ain't heard of it. So imagine my surprise to find out that this cartoon was made by the same folks who made all those creepy and insufferable holiday specials. You know the ones where Santa Claus is always struck down with Giardia because the little ones no longer believe hard enough? A leprechaun or Pinocchio or someone has to feed him eggnog laced with the hopes of sad orphans to get his ass back in the sleigh. Something like that. I don't know. I've never really seen him. Anyway, the company is Rankin Bass, and their history is the perfect place to start this review of The Flight of Dragons. On September 4th, 1960, Arthur Rankin Jr. and Jules Bass founded a company in New York City known as Videocraft International LTD. Rankin had worked as an art director for ABC while Bass worked for an advertising agency. Rankin and Bass created Videocraft International as a television commercial production agency. The two moved into animation production and became known for their stop-motion work, which they called Animagic. Both the Animagic and traditional animation work was outsourced to low-cost animation studios in Tokyo, Japan. One of the more notable animation studios who worked with Rankin and Bass is Toei. Toei is responsible for properties like the original Transformers, Dragon Ball, Sailor Moon, Digimon, and One Piece. Another studio, Topcraft, would see several animators later leave to form Studio Ghibli. Videocraft is most famous to American audiences for their network TV holiday specials that aired from 1964 to 1985. In 1969, the company changed its name to Rankin Bass Productions Incorporated. 
Throughout the 1970s, the company began producing feature-length animated TV movies and adapting the J.R.R. Tolkien Lord of the Rings novels. In the 1980s, Rankin-Bass found success partnering with Japanese-based animation studio Pacific Animation Corporation. Together, the two companies produced Thundercats in 1985. Thunder, 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 thunder Silverhawks in 1986. Tally Hawks! Wings of silver, and Tiger Sharks in 1987. Despite some success, the company would cease production on March 4th, 1987. Rankin-Bass returned to the late 90s with 1990's King and I animated theatrical feature film. The film was a critical and financial disaster. The company would later partner with Fox to produce their final holiday special in 2001 entitled Santa Baby. The Rankin-Bass partnership was firmly dissolved in the early 2000s with the majority of its pre-1974 assets going to NBC Universal and the majority of its post-1974 assets going to Warner Brothers. In 1979, a pseudoscience crackpot named Peter Dickinson, remember that name, wrote a speculative natural history book attempting to claim that dragons were once real. Dickinson tried to provide an evolutionary explanation for how giant creatures like dragons could breathe fire and fly. His explanation? Dragons were essentially blimps. Hold on to that, and remember that they made a kid's cartoon out of this. The plot of the movie doesn't come so much from Dickinson's work as it does the 1976 fantasy novel The Dragon and the George, in which a medieval history expert astral projects back to medieval times to save his fiancée. His consciousness comes to indwell a dragon named Gorbash. Again, hold on to that, they made a kid's cartoon out of this. I figure not a lot of people out there uh, know what the Flight of Dragons is and are much more like me than they are like Binge Lord Dan. So uh, I'm going to break this plot down as best I can. And uh, you're probably going to want a dictionary of some kind, maybe get your binge journal out right along as we go. It's going to get messy. The context is this is the early 80s. And in the late 70s, early 80s, people who were producing content uh, had no idea what would work. All they understood was that Star Wars was nerdy and it made all the money. So everyone was looking for the next Star Wars, but nobody knew whether what nerdy thing would or wouldn't work or what would hit or what wouldn't hit. And so we got this massive amount of sci-fi movies and high concept films. We've got sword and sorceries. I mean, anything with a wizard, a sorcerer, uh, gnomes, dragons, swords, sandals, Anything like that, all of a sudden it becomes the rage again. And some of them are successful more so than others. But that really, at least in part, sort of sparked this renaissance of high fantasy that we live, throughout, that we live through throughout the 70s or 80s. Um, the plot of this is that the world of magic is at odds with the world of machines and science. That the age of magic is essentially coming to an end in whatever time this is. I'm, I'm guessing this is Earth, 
And I'm guessing that this is uh, um, the past. I think that's what the plot idea is. And there is uh, Cor- <laughs> Corlinus, who is the green wizard, uh, who is just this like little guy of uh, sort of a wizard of nature, so to speak. And he is voiced by Harry Morgan. Now, you might not know that name, but you might know the voice if you're listening to it. And if you've been watching with us along at home, you would know that this is, in fact, a triumphant return. Because the last we saw of our boy Harry Morgan, he was in that very, very terrible Dragnet remake uh, starring Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks. He plays the green wizard, uh, Corlinus, and he's got two dragon buddies, Smurgle, not Smeagol. Smeagol is uh, copyrighted material, but Smurgle, I guess it doesn't really matter. It's all Warner Brothers now, but Smurgle the dragon, who is a very elderly dragon, and uh, he's not going to make it through the rest of this movie. He's basically dying, and that's part of a plot point. It's like, well, Smurgle had a lot of adventures, but he's dying now, so he's not going to be able to help us. Then you have Gorbash. Now, Gorbash is a uh, young, they define him as impetuous, uh, but that doesn't really seem to make sense because earlier in the movie, he says of himself that um, he's referring to, where shall I fly thee, my master? And he's like, oh, you don't have to be so formal with me, Gorbash. And he's like, I like to follow the book or something like that. And But then later, he's like, just like, impetuous and that doesn't really you know if you're impetuous you're not going to go by the book now i know i'm breaking down the psychology of a dragon but there's not much to this movie and i'm i'm vamping for time it's going to get convoluted with characters and names uh, but nothing is going to happen so the issue is is that people are now starting to use mills to produce food and uh, Nature Wizard doesn't like that. He doesn't like machines. And a machine kills a swan or a duck or something like that. And he tries to use magic to bring it back to life. But he feels that the power of magic is fading. And he tries to kill or he tries to destroy this, uh, this windmill or this, um, this grain mill that's using water to, to mill grain that killed this swan. And he's like, oh, I might curse thee, uh, Kala, ba 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 levioso, whatever, right? whatever, right? He's casting a spell, and he can't get his magic up. He wants to have a blue ball. I'm not joking. Appear. That's this part of the spell. Blue ball of magic appear and get rid of this mill. And he throws it, and the blue ball goes limp. Cannot get his magic up. I don't know if they sell blue chew for blue balls of wizards who can't get their magic up. But if they did, I would like to have an affiliate link for our listeners because I think Blue Chew works on all sticks, including magic sticks. He goes to the Temple of All Antiquity. Are you following this? I told you. Get your pen. I'll give you a second. They go to the Temple of All Antiquity, and he calls his brothers there. Now, who are his brothers, you might be asking? Well, they're all wizards. And the one wizard is Solaris, who is a blue wizard, who is, now listen to this guy, okay? Now, on the one hand, you get to be the wizard of nature. Not, not bad, not bad, okay? Now, Solarius, this guy's got it made in shape. Listen to everything that, look, you're, you're a limp dick wizard of nature, right? You're a tree-hugging wizard. Eh, his, penis, his nose looks like a penis. Look at him. Google this guy. Google, uh, Google Corlinus. 
his nose is a penis. Okay. Whoever drew this, a uh, lot of problems with noses, very penile noses in this children's cartoon. Very strange. Anyway, uh, his brother, right? Sibling rivalry here. He, uh, Carolina says his domain is outer space. Okay. All right. Right. He's got all the powers of the domain of outer space. Okay. That's everything else. <laughs> if you're on earth and you're like, I've got nature. Okay. What's your brother got outer space. That's the rest of the universe. Every star, every molecule, every quark, every atom, every subatomic particle, every, every uh, planet, every ring, every moon, every white dwarf, every red dwarf, every black hole, everything. Everything. And I'm pretty sure God's out there. So this guy uh, owns God, right? If God's in outer space, this guy owns God. But he doesn't just have everything in outer space, which is the entirety of the cosmos, except for nature on Earth. No, 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 no. He also has the deepest sea. So he also has more stuff. Are you, are you of nature or not of nature? Is the sea not part of nature? Who did you piss off? What mother, like, I assume they're brothers, right? So I'm sure they all have the same mom and dad. What did you do that your parents really didn't love you, that they gave you such a shitty inheritance? What are you controlling? Leaves? What do you got? You make grass grow? Good for you, buddy. You know, why, are, why is this the main wizard? Why is it Solaris the main wizard? He's the most powerful one. He doesn't just have the deepest ocean. He doesn't have the entire rest of the cosmos. He also has the highest mountains. Now, wait a minute. Aren't mountains part of nature? What the fuck do you have, Cornelius? That's what I'm asking, or Corlinus. That's what I want to know, North Carolina. What the fuck do you have? Because you're the one that's like kind of narrating this story, and you're the one, you're the only one who can't get their magic dick up. You're the only one. This is the only guy in this entire goddamn movie. It's like, I don't know, I'm a, I'm, the magic is fading. No, 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 you're fading. Everybody else is doing great. Everybody else is doing absolutely fine. Smargle is alive until you tell him to go on some adventure. He's a, he's, a, he's, he's a geriatric dragon. He's supposed to be your best friend. And you're sending him off to die to fight evil incarnate. Because you can't get your dick up. You can't get your magic hard. It's bizarre. But he's not the only one. There's Lo Tei Zhao. And if you're like, boy, that sounds interesting. It is very interesting. He's the golden wizard, and he's a horrible Asian ethnic stereotype. And he, he has the Fu Manchu and a very, uh, very insensitive, like, Mushu style dragon he rides around on. Uh, and he is the wizard of light. Okay, now, again, that's part of nature. So, Corlinus, fuck there. He's the, uh, he is the wizard of air, everything that's in the air. So again, Carolinas at this point basically has shrubbery. I mean, let's just get down to it. He is the wizard of shrubbery. Okay, great. If I want mulberries, I'll give you a call. You got any lilac? Thanks. He's a florist. That's what he is. He's a florist. But, he, but he's not just that. That's enough, right? Air, that seems pretty important. You are the wizard of all air, right? Okay, that's pretty important. All light, okay, that is real important. That seems like a big deal. 
uh, and transcendence. Transcendence. Your brother is the wizard of all the universe, everything in outer space, everything in the deepest blue sea, and all of the highest mountains on this world and basically every other world. Your other brother, who's a horrible Asian stereotype, but that aside, is the wizard of all spirituality and transcendence. He is the wizard of total peace and enlightenment. You are the wizard of alfalfa. You're the wizard of wheat. You are the wizard of of asparagus. You're the wizard of Brussels sprouts. You are the wizard of shit that little kids don't want to eat. Your nose looks like a penis. Your magic isn't working. You have performance anxiety. Uh, he ends up swearing a young daughter who was an orphan who he adopted to an elderly knight. And it's like, well, when she's of age, you swear to me, you'll marry her. It's like, what the fuck? This, here's what it all comes down to. This guy sucks. Then there's Omadon. Now, Omadon is the red wizard, and he's the lord of the devil's domain and black magic. He's a Satanist from one of the Satanist churches here where they sacrifice babies. Again, the devil, Satan, old Slewfoot, scratch, answers to this guy. Without getting too heavy about it, because some of you can't handle it, some of you can that are spiritual, and some of you aren't too spiritual. So you're not going to understand what I'm talking about. But if you're a Satanist, if you're a lover of the world, you're a Satanist. When something terrible is out there happening, old, old uh, 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 Satan here, son of perdition, he's going on with Don. He's going, what, what is thy bidding, my master? And he's like, ah, go out here, do this. Oh, hey, you know, can I cause a plague? Ah, no, you can't. Then God only uses the devil. He doesn't let him hurt us. He just uses them to show us what a stupid idiot he is. Satan can't take a piss without going to your brother. But this is what the movie is. A lot of people sitting around talking and using a bunch of random terminology. And we haven't even got to the boring part yet. All this is actually kind of charming. All of the deepest, darkest black magic in the universe all belongs to that guy. Satan himself answers him. He controls the devil's domain. Last time I checked, according to Judgment House, that's hell. And you go there for drinking and driving or getting in the And this guy controls that. Have you ever been to a Christian haunted house? The Judgment House? Have you ever seen this? That ain't got fuck all on Omadon. This guy's like, hell, pfft. Yeah, I, I, hell's my beachfront condo. Hell yeah. I own it. I got a lake house over in the lake of fire. Wake up every morning with a... Uh, 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 a V60 pour over and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Eternal conscious torment? More like eternal conscious leisure. If you're Omadon, am I right? They all have more interesting stories. One of them's a guru. One of them's got inner peace and transcendence and literally never leaves like the lotus meditation pose. And just flying around like, like, like a, <laughs> like, I got a, just like a, a deity. The other one is like just absolutely a sweetheart and is all all domains answer to him. The other one is this absolutely scary again, another nose that looks like a penis, but a real scary looking monster. Oh, and by the way, that one, the one who the devil listens to, the one who vacations in hell, Omadon, he's voiced by the triumphant return of James Earl motherfucking Jones, Darth Vader. The last time we saw him was the Lion King. 
And he blows the performance of everybody else out of the water. Strongest magic of all. I have weapons you would not dare use. Fear rules men. By summoning all the dark powers, I will infest the spirit of man so that he uses his science and logic to destroy himself. <gasps> what havoc I will raise. Turn brother against brother. Greed and avarice shall prevail. And those who do not hear my words shall pay the price. I'll teach man his machines. I'll show him what distorted science can give birth to. I'll teach him to fly like a fairy. And I'll give the ultimate answer to all his science can ask. And the world will be free for my magic again. <laughs> he is by far the highlight of this thing and it's gravelly and gruff and he he has this like smoker's laugh i don't know if he was smoking at the time but he's got like <laughs> it's just he's awesome like he's i'm not like he's really 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 good it's like he's scary and malevolent in a way that's 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 different than his presence is very evil darth vader and for him to find that performance inside of himself just really really talented so again you're like more interesting character way better voice actor uh and not that, that harry morgan's a bad voice actor it's just he doesn't have the same vitality in his voice and the same like control over like the the delicious evil dialogue that he's given and that's one of the interesting things about the movie uh, or maybe the one of the fatal flaws is you know typically like in fantasy stuff like this the villain is pretty one dimensional and it's the heroes or the central protagonist um which this movie doesn't have one by the way but if you were to have a protagonist that person tends to be maybe a little bit more complex or or the more interesting character the character that you should relate to or at very least it's power fantasy you should aspire to want to to be them and be like them not in this movie in this movie the most interesting character, the one with most complexity, the one who is kind of least stereotypical, is the villain. His motivations and what he does and how he says it is very, very different. It's over the top. It's fantasy sort of stuff. But he is kind of the more most complex character. And you really, when he's on screen doing stuff, I mean, even his animation is a lot more interesting. We'll get to that when we get to the end. But if this guy feels his magic is fading, why in the world would he call a council at the Temple of All Antiquity and invite the evil brother to come? And it's for this reason. For the irony of all existence, direct quote, for the irony of all existence is that good would be totally impotent without the contrast of evil. So much of this first 30 minutes of an hour and a half film is Corlinus and the other wizards or other random characters who appear going on and on with deeply complicated, intricate existential ideas about life and science and magic. 
And the basic premise is this, that the more that man depends upon logic, and why are they dependent on logic? Because, to quote them, it's just so logical. The more that man depends upon logic, that the more the realm of magic or the power of magic fades, but come to find out, all of man's great innovations and any seemingly miraculous achievement in technology or advancement in knowledge is actually inspired by a form of magic. The human beings are actually taking magical things, literally, in this literally magical thinking <laughs> is what rules the world. And as they get away from magical thinking into empirical thinking, is actually going to like bring about the end of human civilization and 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 the world of magic and the world of man. And the way they show you this is they show you deforestation and the a bomb. And Omadon sees the opportunity. He's like, "Look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to inspire them. Your powers are fading. Mine are only increasing. My dick's only getting harder. I got big dick energy. I got big dick evil energy." And uh, I'm only getting more powerful. So I'm going to feed them a bunch of ideas and I'm going to inspire them and I'm going to let them utterly ruin the planet so they have nothing else to turn to but black magic, which I'm the god of. And then I'll have all the power and I'll control them and I'll just wipe them the fuck out because I, I just want to. And all the other wizards are like, oh, well, that doesn't leave much room for us. And again, I'm going, well, who cares? Who cares? So this is, this is Corlinus' idea to solve this problem. Well, we got to preserve the magic so that humanity can survive, but we have to defend ourselves against logic and reason. So we have to insulate ourselves into this, the last realm of magic is what they call it. If we gather all of the wizard brethren and we all make a magic shield and a wall of invisibility and we summon all enchanted creatures to come before the age of enchantment ends and the age of empiricism begins, the enlightenment, I guess, then we can all live in this invisible realm completely insulated from logical reality where we will be able to live forever in total freedom yet still exist enough to be magical to inspire human evolution. And as a child, this is probably really like a wonderful idea and really endearing. As a grown man living in 2022, seeing entire civilizations, including the one I live in, collapse because a bunch of people want to reject the age of empir empirical science and data and evidence-based medicine and practice and governance and economics to turn to magical thinking and would much rather believe in conspiracy theory and weird magical ideas and think that they can actually affect the the real world through the power of positivity and magical thinking and juice cleanses and would rather live in a insulated bubble protected by a wall of invisibility i like to call ignorance if they could just build a wall of ignorance and live in that in their weird myopic uh, uh utopia of stupidity and asininity um, I don't find that charming at all. Fuck these elves, fuck these gnomes, fuck these dragons. Let's get back to science. Before you get up for that final snack, I want you to know I'll be right back. Ha! Dungeons and Dragons emphasizes black and white witchcraft. 
It creates a world of fear and death. Dr. Gary North says, Dungeons & Dragons is the most effectively, most magnificently packaged, most profitably marketed, the most thoroughly researched introduction to the occult in man's recorded history. They have to inspire a quest, a quest of pawns. But there's a rule that you can't have a quest without having at least three parties. Now, time out. This is part of my kind of beef with fantasy. Who sets these rules? Novel, story, movie, video game. It's always like, well, we can't do this. We can't pass through the enchanted forest unless thus and so happens. Unless there's this many of us, then we can't begin a quest without a party of this size and this, that, whatever. Like, where do magical logistics come from? If the world of magic and the world of wizardry, sorcery is so much superior to the world of men, who is handling wizard logistics? It's like when somebody say, well, they say, who is they? If you're going to be picking people up along the way, why can't you leave on your quest as a solo person or with two people? You can't meet along the way. You have to leave as three. And if you think I'm being like uh, really like picky about this, the movie makes a point of it because of something that's about to happen. So there's, there's three or four of them. There's three of them, right? So, so here's, here's what... Uh, Corlinus does. Well, I'm the wizard of nature, and since this whole thing's going to take place on land, and that's all I fucking got is, is land, once well, it's not a mountain, or the deepest part of the sea, which is, by the way, also land, or as long as it's not in another planet or another uh, satellite or constellation, <laughs> as long as it's land in this general region, I mean, what is the, what is the extent of his domain? Does Corlinus have a 50 foot like range? Is it like Bumble where you can only search so far? Like, how do you, how do you set your magic? Like, you know, what, what, what exact, what does land entail? I'm going to inspire. And this, there's a cheat coming too, by the way, I'm going to inspire people. So the first thing I'm going to do, Mr. Greeny here. So I'm going to call Sor Oren, Oren Neville Smythe, who is a knight and a patterist, a sexual predator. We'll get to that in his backstory. Then Gorbosh, who's a, a impetuous dragon who always plays by the rules. The golden wizard brings out a flute, and he goes, this is the flute of healing sleep. The official soundtrack of all fantasy, the fucking flute. Who decided that? Who decided that the only music anybody listens to in medieval times, uh, in, in lands of high fantasy, with, again, wizards, portals, orbs, dragons, orcs, demons, balrogs, all this sort of shit, who decided that in this world, this entire genre of fiction, the only fucking music any of these people could ever listen to is an imp playing a flute? Why? And this other thing, fantasy worlds are always the past. Why? Why does fantasy always take place during the past? Now, someone's already commenting, well, actually, there's a book series. Don't well actually me. That's going to come up later in the story. Well, actually, people, being a, a Twitter reply guy is the major <laughs> plot point. It's the turning point of this conflict, this destructive conflict. Okay, so uh, then the other guy shows up. The blue wizard's like, I'm going to give you the shield of Saturn. It's made from the actual rings of Saturn itself, and it's meant to repel dark magic. And you're going to give these things to the third member of this quest party, uh, who is the 777th son of this great Sir Peter, 
who was the dragon master uh, who lived many centuries ago. And this guy is going to live many centuries into the future. So the tree, write this down, the tree of antiquity says to Coralinus, you got to go to the future. There ain't no leaders around here. There ain't no men around here who are going to help you fight the, the devil's pimp. You got to go to the future. In the future, there's this guy, and he lives. he's, he's going to be trying to trade his valuables. It's not a joke. In at a pawn shop, because he's so broke, and he's working so many jobs, he can barely eat a cheese sandwich. But he's invented a board game that's more or less shoots and ladders meets Dungeons and Dragons. And he's got to get the capital to make several thousand of these to try to sell them so he can get his fortune as a game master, uh, but he needs food to eat. So he's going to give family heirlooms away at a pawn shop to get the money. And what's, there's actually a really funny line in this where he's talking to the pawn shop guy. He's like, hey, maybe we could go in and start a business together, and you can give me a couple thousand bucks, and all i got to do is print a couple of these out. We'll start making money. And he's like, I'm not giving you no money for no board game. Now, meanwhile, it seems like this is a regular routine. He comes in, this Dickinson, this 777th son of Dickinson, known as Peter Dickinson. Now, is that name familiar? Yes, that's the crackpot who wrote the book that dragons existed and they were blimps. So the main character is named after the guy who wrote a, a piece of shit speculative natural history book that you've never heard of. So, and he's voiced by John Ritter uh, from Three's Company. So John Ritter, who is not good in this, by the way, uh, is voicing this guy, and it seems like this is a daily occurrence where he accosts this elderly pawn shop guy to, to, to buy his family heirlooms and then if he's not willing to do that or or not willing to be an angel investor for his role-playing game that he's trying to get off the ground, he then forces him to play the role-playing game, role game with him. And that's what he's doing. He's like, well, you could at least play me in a game. And he's like, well, how about this watch? This is my ancestor's watch. This is a family heirloom. And this is the funny line. The pawn guy says, your heirs didn't loom that large. Uh, he's like, I can only give you 50 bucks for it. And he was like, that, it's funny. That was a funny line. Um, Dickinson's board game is, ba, 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 the flight of dragons. Holy shit. Now you would think, like, this is where it started to get interesting. I'm like, wait a minute. Is the board game like Jumanji? Is it coming to life? Right? Or is he inadvertently made a board game based on ancestral, uh, like collective unconscious memory? What is the story here? Because the game pieces for the characters, because it's kind of like Dungeons and Dragons, only you have actual uh, character pieces, which you can have in Dungeons and Dragons. I've got an unpainted paladin over here that I've never opened that I would be willing to sell you if you want it. Uh, anyway, they, so they do have them, but this is, this is actually like more like an actual physical board game, board game, roll dice, move so many squares, such and such happens to you, you pull cards and do magic spells and whatnot. So it's a little bit more, I guess, structured in a way. I don't know how to, to put it it's different than Dungeons and Dragons, but it's similar enough. All the wizards are there. They're exactly the same. 
The dragons are there, the knights there, all the characters are there, the plot is the exact same. So you would think this is like a never-ending story thing, we're in a Ben reality, it's going to get meta. No. Corlinus pauses time, shows up as his game piece self, calls John Ritter Beetlejuice style as if he's Lydia down to the, the board game. They sit on a pair of dice and he's like, hey, we're going into the past. And then they fly through time on a pair of dice. And John Ritter's like, am I dreaming or is this happening? It will never be answered. R not really. And then they fall for a very long time. Carlinus then recounts all of the exposition you just sat through for the last 20 minutes again. Peter lands into the world of the past, which is medieval times. Dragons are real. And he's like, you can't be real. That's not science. So that's what his character is going to be. And at this point, like the kid appeal of this sort of makes sense. If you're a kid in the early 80s and you're into fantasy stuff, the idea of a story comes to life or a game that you're playing comes to life and you go into the world of the game and you become the hero of the game, that is really interesting. I understand the appeal of that. The fault of this movie is that's not what happens. Peter is set up, I guess, as our protagonist, but he really isn't the protagonist because most of the time he doesn't do anything. The rest of this movie is people explaining what has already previously happened to them in a previous life at a previous adventure. And then it's just him going, oh, wow, what a story. But wait a minute. This can't be real because science. They have to go, oh, silly modern man. Science can explain everything. It's the domain of magic. He's like, oh, guess you're right. And then, then just, well, I am. Listen to this story of how I pledged my love to a child bride. Not joking. Uh, you know, I found Gorbosh. I killed a dragon. There was an egg. I took the egg to my friend. My friend was raised a little girl. I said, once you're old enough, to marry, I'll marry you, and I will love you. And she, you know, but now she finds you attractive. And now she doesn't want to marry me. What will I ever do? It's just insane. So here's what happens. Uh, Corlinus again fucks up. And he prematurely incantates. <laughs> and he fucks the spell up, and Peter's consciousness goes into Gorbash. And now you have a dragon, your human hero who's supposed to be the leader of the quest, who is completely ineffectual as a human being, is now inside the mind of a dragon, but he doesn't know how to be a dragon because he doesn't think dragons are real. So the rest of this movie is Sir Oren Neville Smythe and Smurgle, who's a dragon way too fucking old to be on this quest, he has to go on the quest anyways, and along the way has to teach uh, John Ritter how to be a dragon. And then they, they both tell him a bunch of stories in between you watching them eat and get drunk. <laughs> um, I, I'm not joking. It's just a bunch of flashbacks to their life, and their stories have almost nothing to do with the plot. And then they meet a bunch of other sort of like fantasy characters. Oh, wine. Wine not. 
<laughs> this isn't wine. It's mead. But not bad. Peter, how'd that uh, Beacon Street song go again? Uh, I came from Louisiana with a banjo on my knee. Oh, Susanna, don't you cry for me. Here comes Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Pluck -a -pluck -a -pluck -a -pluck -a -pluck I am ruined. And Peter's only character trait at this point is that he has to logically explain scientifically everything that's happening, which, you know, is exactly what a kid wants when they're watching a fantasy show. Well, if you have the stomach acid in your stomach and the calcium and limestone, and you have this thing in your mouth that creates electricity, that would create fire, which would, you know, hydrogen. And basically, it's all a Trojan horse for the real Peter Dickinson's crackpot dirigible dragon theory. Along the way, bad things happen like they're sand mercs, and sand mercs or sand murics are, uh, they call them the brain fryers because they're, they're basically cicadas that make so much noise it fries your brain. And the only way that, <laughs> only, the only thing that's going to stop Peter and Smurgle's dragon brains from being melted and fried in their head is they try to think of songs, they try to think of poetry, anything to get them off of the sound of these sand mercs. And uh, it it goes into them singing uh, Oh Susanna, and but it still doesn't work, and their brains start to fry in their head. I'm not, this oh, it's, it's really at this point, it sounds like I'm making this shit up on the fly. I'm not. This is real. This is a real movie that somebody produced. So this dog appears, or this wolf named Arg, like Arg, not R like a pirate, like Arg, like you've been stabbed. That's exactly how he talks the entire time too. Um, Arg is dead. He was pulled into the sea. We get a flashback again. So we leave when something finally happens and the brains of these dragons are melting out of their ears like hot candle wax. When we, that finally occurs, something is, oh, okay, all right, we're an hour in and something's finally going to happen. We then flash back to this dog being pulled into the sea by a giant sea monster where he drowns. But the deepest sea is the domain of Solaris. So Solarius or Solaris appears to this dead dog as like, look, I'll cut you a deal. Uh, you go and you go save these two dragons and I'll give you your breath back. He's like, oh, well, I'm resurrected. Yay. He's like, no, 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 no. You're not resurrected. You're alive, but you're not breathing. So you're not really alive. You're animated, but you're not alive. And at this point, let's say, you know, you're watching something you're not really engaged with. Cause I started thinking, okay, everybody thinks that this wolf has been dead for years because he's just disappeared. So if a sea monster pulled you into the sea and you've been laying lifeless at the bottom of the sea, you're like past the bloating phase, right? Like, I don't know if you bloat first and then sink or you sink first and then bloat and float to the top. I think it's that way, right? You bloat to the top as you rot because you fill up with like uh, putrefaction gases, uh, kind of like a dirigible. And um, I'm probably the only one who's ever compared a, uh, a bloated dead corpse to a blimp uh, or a dragon for that matter. But that's my theory. 
But if you're just like dead, 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 dead at the bottom, I mean, dead for years, you would be waterlogged and rotten, right? Like you would be just strands of meat and maybe not even meat. Like you would just be, I mean, and the stink. I mean, has your dog ever got out in the rain? If you're going to a dog beach with your dog and they had to smell a wet dog afterwards, imagine a dog that's been dead in an ocean or a sea at the bottom of it for an interminable amount of time. Well, needless to say, the queen of the sand marks freaks out. She leaves. We don't see it, but they just kind of disappear. He explains, well, the queen of the sand marks. Bye, blah, 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 blah. They're like, but we heard you were dead. He's like, I am dead, but I made a deal that if I saved you, I would be able to breathe. I did my part, and then I'm breathing. So that must mean the wizard did his part. Uh, he now joins the quest. As does, a little later on, Danielle. Danielle is a smoking hot smoke show redhead with big eyes and lots of cleavage in a kind of uh, Peter Pan meets Robin Hood outfit and essentially exists to be the archer hero of the team. She's the Hawkeye of the team. And is just a love interest for Sir Oren Neville Smythe now that he's lost his child bride to John Ritter, who is a cash-strapped crackpot. You're like, what the fuck is this movie about? Uh, I was asking myself the same thing as this was happening. We're, we're still, just nothing is happening. They also get attacked by a bunch of gnomes or dwarves, I think, and that's where they meet Giles. Giles, the, the dwarf. I skipped over the part where the dragons have to rob some gnomes of their jewels to eat them to make the fire because that didn't really seem pertinent. I'm still going. So now Danielle... Arg and uh, uh, Giles, they all finally make it to the domain of Omadon. Omadon sends a stinkyle after them. They use science to kill it. He breathes fire into it. It's sulfur. It blows up. This gets the attention of Omadon, who then awakens all the dragons that, of the, that he's put under a spell in the entire world which is, this is the reason why this fucking movie is called The Flight of Dragons. It's not because your protagonist becomes a dragon, because he doesn't show up until 30 minutes into this 90-minute movie, and he's not a protagonist. He doesn't do much of anything. At one point, he gets drunk at an inn, and then when the bad guys attack the inn, and the innkeeper is killed... Only after he goes, I'm ruined. You, you ate all my food. You drank all my wine. Then the, the whole fucking thing is demolished. Then John Ritter's like, the innkeeper's dead. It's like, you're not a fucking hero. You ruined this guy's business, and he got him murdered. He's like, I live in Switzerland. I'm a neutral between both parties. I live between both realms. Not neutral anymore, motherfucker. You're dead. Better, better strike a deal with uh, one of the wizard's brothers to come back so he can breathe again. John Ritter is supposed to fight an ogre because the ogre breaks in and steals um, uh, uh, Sir Orin and his new hottie. And he has him kidnapped. And Smurgle's like, I'm too old for this shit. If I fight this guy, I'll die. 
And then John Ritter fucks it up so bad that Smurgle has to fight him anyways. Smurgle kills the ogre. Then he immediately falls over. And then he goes, oh, buddy, I feel like something burst inside of me. I think it's my heart. But if I'm going to die, what a way to go. Then he dies. So Smurgle is dead because John Ritter fucking sucks as a dragon. Not a protagonist. John Ritter uh, kills a sulfur worm. That draws the attention of all of the dragons for the flight of dragons, which leads to the death of Arg again. This guy just got resurrected from the sea to save your ass, and you got him killed a day later. You got Giles, who's an outlaw dwarf. You got an elf. You got him killed. You got Danielle, who's a smoke show archer. She fucking dies. Then all that's left is Sir Orin. Sir Orin's like, I don't have the love of my life anymore. I've lost two loves of my life. One of them wants to fuck a dragon. The other one got killed by a dragon. Uh, my life is ruined. He swears an oath to a sword by God as his witness and stabs the dragon in the heart. It's actually a very well-written prayer. And the dragon laughs at him, but he kills the dragon, but the dragon kills him. So now, Omadon has killed Everybody, 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 everybody. The only person that doesn't die is Gorbosh, who John Ritter is inhabiting, because to try to save them from all these dragons, fucking John Ritter whips out that, that shield of Saturn, and that's the thing that's going to protect him from black magic and dragons and shit. And he's like, okay, or the, or the flute, or whatever the fuck, whatever the fuck. He pulls out one of his things. And it causes all the dragons to go to sleep. I think it's the flute. And the little elf guy plays a little fucking flute. All dragons go to sleep. Which includes now John Ritter as the dragon. So he can't help defend his friends. And that's how they get killed. But then he realizes that two, four, two, two things can't occupy the same space at the same time. And as soon as his mind realizes that science is real, he becomes unleashed from outside the dragon's body. And now he's just a nerdy guy with glasses. All of his friends are dead. Uh, the dragon he was inside of is the only one left living is in a fucking coma. All the other dragons have been put to sleep. The domain of darkness is spread all over the world. Omadon appears. He becomes a seven-headed antichrist book of revelation style beast. This looks really awesome, by the way. And, and then it has a line of like, uh, all evil dwells within me. I am all evil. I am all power. And he's facing him down, and the way he gets faced down is like, just imagine, just imagine Doctor Strange if the ending was terrible. He's like, my science is more powerful than your incantations. He's like, nothing is more powerful than magic. And he's like, you're wrong. Science is the greatest magic there is. <laughs> or imagination is the greatest magic or some shit. And... He starts just hurling random scientific quotes and principles to him. Like literally is just like e equals MC square. Oh no. And then eventually he just turns to dust and ash. And uh, he's just like reading off like atomic numbers for certain elements. And it's just, that's it. He defeats him by quoting science at him. And then the big bad monster who's all evil vanishes away. All the dragons awaken. All of the greenery of is, and all of the nature is restored. Magic and the balance of magic is restored to the land. All of his dead friends, except for Smurgle. That guy's still dead. 
But all of his other dead friends come back to life. And John Ritter is like, wow, what a great adventure we all had. I'm going back to Earth now. And you're like, well, that must be the end of it. No, it fucking isn't. This shit continues on for what feels like another 15 fucking minutes. Fast forward to John Ritter at the goddamn pawn shop again. The guy's like, look, motherfucker, no more watches. I can give you 50 bucks. It's all I got. He's like, nope, I got this. He pulls a giant gold shield of Saturn. The pawn shop guy looks at it. He goes, this is pure gold with gems. You could travel the entire world. You're set for life financially. And John Ritter goes, no, not for me. I just want to take that and have all my money to build a giant cabin, a small cabin, actually, rather, a small cabin by the lake that reminds me of a place I visited once. So this guy has now come into an infinite fortune. His instinct is to take it to a pawn shop. He can now travel the world and, by the way, also get his fucking game published. No more interest in the game whatsoever. It's never explored. Is he in the game? Is the game real? What, what, what is the deal here? Never explore it. Never explore it at fucking all. This guy's like, you can live. You never have to work again. You could go from having, having two jobs. You have all this wealth. Now he's like, no, 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 no. I just want enough money to build me a cabin. Motherfucker, just get all the goddamn money you can get from this thing. Well, Corlinus and his child adopted human daughter. She's like, daddy, I got to be with him. Daddy Cornelius, thank you for raising me, but I want that dick. And he's like, well, I've, I was afraid you'd say so. I'll open a portal since my magic is back, and I'll send you there, but you can never return to the domain of magic because we're all packing up to go to the last realm of magic, and uh, you'll never see me again. She's like, peace. And she shows up on the other side, and she's got some kind of jewels or some sort of shit. And she's like, well, what are these worth? And all of a sudden, she's immediately pawning her stuff. That is like priceless magical heirlooms from another time, dimension. What are we talking about? I don't know. And it just ends. The cartoon just ends. That's it. What was the point? Who is the main character? Why does any of this matter? What, are we, what, is it, what does this have to say about science and reason versus imagination and magic? Ultimately, reason has to triumph over magic. What about all of the bad things that magic does? Are we trying to say that basically that logic, just like magic, creates a world where you can use logic either for good or bad? Like there's no fine point put in anything. There are ideas that are presented, but nothing is explored. There's almost no connection between these very, very heady, lofty, overly articulate, complicated ideas they're presenting to small children for the first 25, 30 minutes. There's no connection whatsoever to the actions that take place within the narrative. Um, it, it, the first half hour of it, I found uh, reasonably interesting. I'm, I'm bored with it. Okay, let's. where are we going to go with this? And then it just drags on and on and on until that final confrontation because that's all they really had. There's no story to really be told here. It's all about just getting these guys and their asses to this spot to fight this battle, to do this thing. And it doesn't feel epic. It doesn't feel, it just does, I mean, it's just low grade fantasy junk. I'm going to have to give this thing a four out of 10. 
The Flight of Dragons is a terrible movie because what it really is, is it's a game. It's a role-playing game being played out through flashbacks and backstories, only you are neither the Dragon Master or Dungeon Master making it all up on the spot or a player performing as an alter ego. The thrill of improvisation and imagination are present as you watch the story, so you're just a non-participant sitting by the wayside watching crudely animated characters talk garp and gobbledygook at each other. All of the most important events, save the end, have already happened before the story this movie is telling. This is a type of storytelling that is destined to cause disengagement from your audience. And if you need an example of that, see the book of Boba Fett. A past survived is a present story without any stakes. How can I feel tension or excitement over something that has already happened? So all of my gripes and critiques of this film boil down to the fact that I watched it 40 years too late. By this point, we've seen fantasy done so much better and animation evolve into lifelike moving works of art. So art and expectations move on. Watching The Flight of Dragons honestly felt a lot like watching that DJ at the after party kill the club with emo music. The music only sounds good to people who were in a certain place and time in their life when it was new. For those people, music, many people find downright awful, is now synonymous with youthful energy, messy breakups, and careless late nights. For them, it is as much, if not more, about the memories than the merits of the music. Something awful and void of merit to one person is the next person's fondest memory. And that's what makes a sponsored episode so tough. People usually pay to take down a movie that they hate or extol a movie that they love, but your reaction has to be your own and it may differ from the person paying good money to hear your thoughts. The only choice you have is to be honest or respecting what a movie might mean to someone who saw it a lifetime ago as a small child. Sometimes, like in the case of emo music or the flight of dragons, you just had to be there to love it. Unfortunately, did not love the Flight of Dragons. But if you would like to sponsor an episode, if you want to take the risk and put the pressure on me to revisit something from your childhood like Binge Lord Dan did, then you could uh, always hit us up on our page. Just go to bingemovies.podbean.com, hit sponsor an episode. Uh, we have two options one is for a deep dive feature presentation review, and the other is a ranking episode. Again, we always try to do those a little bit different. Um, than our standard episodes. So again, uh, hopefully some kind of added value for your money. If you like what we're doing here and you want to support myself or the rest of the Binge Movies team, or you just want to keep the show going and keep the quality getting better, the technology getting better, the equipment getting better, and so we can sell a little money aside for when computers and things inevitably break down, you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash binge movies. We have four tiers of sponsorship. Our top tier gives an insane amount of benefits, but it's very limited. We've only got three or four spots left. We've got two people at what we call our elite patrons or our patron elite. Those are the people who support the show. Uh, for instance, our brand new patron elite is Heather Sachs. 
You can find her Twitter profile in the show notes, along with Chris Williams. They are our elite patrons, and they're more or less like producers of the show. So thank you to Heather and Chris. Thank you for being big-time supporters of the show. Uh, and basically, like our Patreon, we have a whole other series of content we're going to be putting out throughout the year that's going to be exclusive to Patreon only. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So we're still doing sponsored episodes. The next season, season 6.1, is going to be around the corner. I'm working on it now. Hope to get it out to you pretty soon. And uh, I'm excited. It's going to be some good stuff, some controversial stuff. We're going to be pushing the envelope on the types of films we watch and cover into eras, decades, genres, directors, styles that we've never even, never even come close to touching before. Uh, and we've got some highs and some low, low lows. So it should be fun. 